0: Father, I pray you grant us grace. Teach us, change us. Help us focus more on Christ. Amen. From the very beginning, the temptation has always been that there's something God's always been holding back from us. If we turn to Genesis 3, 4, and 5... Here we are in the garden. God's created this incredible world. It's all good. It's all perfect. He plants this wonderful garden in Eden. He puts the man and the woman there. He puts them together in marriage. And they're there to take care of this wonderful place there to be. And the serpent shows up. And he says to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat this fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was the serpent saying? Very simply, he was saying this. God has some secret wisdom and knowledge over here that He's holding back from you. And you need that and I'm here to help. And I'm going to help you get this part of what God has given that he's not, keep giving to you, I'm going to help you get this thing so you'll be like God. And we know the result of that, don't we? Every day we deal with the results of that, don't we? The fall of man in the garden. Paul, as he looks at the Colossian church, as you look at chapter 1, Paul is extremely excited for what's going on in this church. He sees faith. He sees hope. He sees love. He sees the gospel being planted here and bearing fruit and growing. And notice he prays for them that they'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that they'll walk in a manner worthy of him. This church established by Epaphras is thriving. The gospel has been planted in good soil And these people are worshiping Christ and are drawing upon him for their strength. And then he spends a whole part of the first chapter talking about the glory of Christ and how amazing he is, that he's the creator of the universe and that he is the head of the body, the church. And everything in this universe is held together by him. And he's made the invisible and the visible. The angels and the rulers and authorities and powers, everything's been created by him. And he puts Christ up on this pedestal and lifts them up to look at him. And then he talks about what Christ has done, that Christ has taken them from the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And that he has made them who were once aliens now in relationship with Christ. And Paul tells them, my ministry is to what? What? help everyone become complete in Christ. Everyone to be, reach the fullness of the maturity of Jesus Christ. But when he comes to chapter 2, he lets us know all through chapter 2 that he has a concern. That as well as things have gotten started, and as faithful and as steadfast as they've been, in verse 5 he says, "...for though I am absent body, yet I am with you in spirit." rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Things were going well. And when things are going well, most pastors get, discouraged, get, get concerned. Okay, what's going on? And he knew there was some teaching going on in the Colossian church from certain brothers that was going against the all-sufficiency of Christ. And so Paul, in chapter 2, is going to hammer and hammer and hammer those things that we tend to think that we need in addition to Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says, the gospel is that God accepts me because of Jesus' cross, work alone and so I trust and obey him in life that's the gospel I'm accepted because of what Jesus did and as a result of that I trust and I what? Obey if we're not careful it slides to this I trust and obey him in life That God will accept me. Do we see the subtle difference? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection purchased our relationship with God. And as a result, there is trust and obedience. It is not that we trust and obey and pay for our salvation and relationship with God. And it's really easy for us to slide from the gospel to the gospel plus. And Paul is going to hammer that. His first point is Christ is all we need in verses 1 through 3 and 9 and 10. those in verse 2, he wants us to know the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He said, I want you to know Christ and I want you to understand who he is and I want you to understand fully all that he's done and as you're living out your life, walking by faith, to grow to a full understanding of what you've been given. Oh, I want you to know that so much because then you'll have full assurance of your salvation and of your standing with Christ. Verse three, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Many people believe in the Colossian heresy. There was this thinking, you know, there's this, there's this mystery knowledge that you don't know about. There's some secret things you need to seek God on because you don't know them. And I just happen to be the person who has that secret knowledge. And so some of these people are being risen up in the church because of their secret knowledge. And Paul just hammers them and says, listen, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're looking for wisdom, you're looking for knowledge, You're looking for all there is, it's all there in Christ. It has all been given to you. In verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ we have God in all of his fullness. He's He's not a creation from God, he's not an emanation from God. He is God. We have him in fullness. Christ is all of God. In verse 19, for in him all the full, chapter 1 verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is God and he's been given to us. And in verse 10 he says, and you have been filled in him. Or if you take the New King James Version, and you are complete in him. You have been given Christ The logical question is, what more is there to give you? Colossian believers, FCF believers, what more is there to have than Christ? And this is the message of Paul. You have it all. You have Christ. There is nothing else you need. You have been given Christ. In Second Peter, Second um, Corinthians one three through five, Paul has a concern, which is the same concern he has in the, here in the Colossian letter. He says, "But I am afraid." This is Second Corinthians eleven three through five. I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's the goal of this message? That you'll have sincere devotion, pure devotion to Christ and to nothing else. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, that the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you receive a different gospel from the one you received, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, Corinthians, somebody can come along and give a different gospel or a different Jesus, and you're just fine with it. There's not a problem. You just roll with the punches. We live in an age in our country where the Christian church has little to no discernment. Little to no discernment and we are part of that pond and a lot of times we accept things or things are presented to us and we go oh that sounds wonderful let me get that book or oh this is wonderful i got to go to that seminar and we we don't really discern number 1 we don't know really what we've been given in Christ and what the gospel really is and we walk around with our little theological bucket and we hear a teaching, oh, that sounds good, drop it in here. And here's another, that sounds good, that drop it in. Oh, here's one over here, I'll drop that. Oh, go to the Christian bookstore, my goodness, what choices do we have there? Because the Christian bookstores, by and large, simply put on the shelf what will sell. So we have T.D. Jakes, or Joyce Myers, Health and Wealth. Uh, we have all these things, oh, that, that sounds good, I like that. Or Norman Vincent Peale, you know, Robert Schuller, positive thinking. Oh, I need some of that. That sounds good. And we just have our pail just full of stuff, not realizing that a lot of this stuff undercuts Christ, undercuts the gospel that we have been given. Paul tells us in 2 Peter 1, 3-4, his divine power has granted us ...to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence... ...by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises... ...so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature... ...having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Peter tells us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness... Where have we been given that? We've been given that in Christ. We've been given that in his word. And we've been given that by his spirit that lives in us. There is nothing outside of those that we, there's anything that we need outside of those. The word, the spirit, and Christ himself and what he's done for us. And he says, through knowledge of him, and you're going to hear that a lot, the knowledge of Christ... In other words, we need to grow in our understanding of who he is, what he's done, what it means for us, and how he means to change us. Who called us to his own glory and excellence, and he granted us his precious and very great promises, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that you can partake of the Spirit, that you can live your life in the power of the Spirit, and that you can escape the corruption of this sinful world. We have all that in Jesus. Jesus didn't just die so that we would be forgiven and go to heaven. That for sure is glorious and great and magnificent. But he also made provision that we would begin to become like him. And he gave us his spirit and he gave us his word and he gave us his promises and the rest of our life is to be taking off the old ideas and words and thoughts and motives and putting on godly words and thoughts and motives and works. That's what we've been called to do and Paul says we have all that we need. We do not need a second blessing, a second work of grace. Mystical encounters where we get some secret, secret word from God. Extra man-made laws to keep. Harsh treatment of the body. Emotional impressions. Visions from angels. Secret wisdom. What more do we need than Christ? What more do we need than Christ? So Paul's, Paul's first point is, all we need is Christ. Colossians You've been given the best. You've been given the the hidden pearl of great price. Be careful that someone comes along and offers you Jesus plus. Well, what's the deal with Jesus plus? It's okay. We love Jesus. And this over here is pretty good too. Let's be involved in this, whatever this might be. Point two, we are to walk by faith in Christ, verses 6 through 8. He tells us, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because we have everything in Christ, we have all the wisdom and knowledge and the power we need to live our life. Therefore, just as you receive Christ, the Lord, so walk in him. Just as you received him, Walk in him. How did you receive Jesus? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You came to Jesus and you said, I cannot save myself. Even in my best efforts and the most religious activities I have, I am not able to save myself. And you trusted completely in Jesus and his work on the cross to be enough to pay the penalty of your sin that you might be saved. Now, how do we walk? The same way. Lord Jesus, I am totally incapable in my own effort, strength, wisdom, and power to be able to live the life you called me to live that's laid out in the scriptures, the law of God, the commands of God. Therefore, I trust you and you only. To be able to help me to change the way I think and talk and live and to become like you. Most of us in our Christian life, at some point when we first got saved, we believed by faith, we trusted Jesus. And then we got on the religious treadmill and started working hard to please God and to change We don't understand our, na- our nature, do we? We don't understand how fallen we are from God. We don't understand our complete dependence upon Jesus. Notice Paul describes it here in verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in, his, in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying you were rooted. How did, they, how did we get rooted? Christ reached out and grabbed us. And he planted us in the soil of Jesus Christ. He rooted us in Christ. That is a present perfect participle that says there was a time in the past when this event happened. It is done. It is finished. And the results continue on. Your salvation, if you're saved, was a permanent act in the past with continued fruit into the present. And notice what he says here. He says, Built up in him and established by faith. So, how do we grow? We're built up in him, we're established by faith. Notice he says this just as you were taught. How are you going to grow in Christ? Just as the apostle taught you. Where are the teachings of the apostle? in this book, right here. How are you going to grow up in Christ? By this book. Paul's basically saying not by visions, not by the angels, not by secret messages, not by impressions, not by all these things, not by your legalistic rules and regulations, but by the word of God. That is what you're to grow up in. And what will be the result? You're going to be abounding in thanksgiving. Why do we abound in thanksgiving? Number one, because all our sins have been forgiven and we have a right relationship with Christ. And number two, we begin to see Christ ever so gradually making us to think and speak and act and be motivated more by God and less by our own sinful nature. So we as people, as we're not perfect, but as we're progressing, we should be thankful and joyful in what God is doing in our hearts. So, how do what does this look like practically? All right, try to make it practical. Try to bring it down from up here down to the down to the shoe leather. Okay, number 1, how do we do this? First, we need to daily acknowledge, you need to daily acknowledge your complete dependence on Christ. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And we always, at some point, begin to think we can do it. This is our nature, right? I can do it. I can make this happen. I heard a great message, now I'm just going to go apply it. Well, great, super. Who's going to help you do that? Well, you know, I've got a lot of energy here. I can do it. Really? John 15:5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do some things. No. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Or, from, or uh, Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Are you building your Christian life and your own efforts One way to test that is, how much are you praying and asking God to help you? How much are you praying and saying, "God, I can't do this without Your help. I can't overcome this sin of laziness, or this, or this sin of being critical, or this sin of you know, um, lust, or whatever it is. You will not conquer any of those sins in your own energy. I'll say that again. You will conquer none of those sins." in your own strength. I don't care if you have 500 accountability partners who are calling you five seconds a day. That's a great plan. The problem is, if that accountability partner is not pointing you back to Jesus, it's just a great little plan, isn't it? And it has no power to change your heart. Christ is the only one who can change our heart. So first, daily, Hourly, we need to acknowledge that apart from Jesus' help, we're not going to change one bit. Point two: we need to renew our mind in God's Word. A lot of we all have, as I guess Zig Ziglar would say, stinking thinking. It's more unbiblical thinking. We have ideas that we think are right. And only when we bathe our mind in the word of God do we begin to get those ideas out and put in biblical thoughts. So in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first, dependence. Father, I need you. I need you to help me to be in your word I need you to help me to pray I need you to help me to love my wife I need you to help me to love my kids I need you to help me to work hard this day I need you to help me to not worry I need you to help me to not lust I need you to help me to not be lazy I need you to help me quit being critical of my brothers and sisters in Christ I need you to help me to quit being unloving I need your help only you and by your power can I can I receive that help and then secondly reading and saturating ourselves in the word so that our mind is beginning to change and think God's thoughts after him. Three, trust Christ to begin changing your daily life to please him. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have the high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands our sin better than anyone else does even though he never sinned. He understands the temptations that you face. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many of y'all think that means, when I have a crisis, I need to go to Hebrews 4? If i got a really bad situation... You know, I'm getting ready to have my house foreclosed or I'm losing my job. I'm going to go to Hebrews 4 and I'm going to go in a time of need. How do you define a time of need? It needs to be every moment of what? Every day. Doesn't it? We need him every hour. We need Christ. Number four, we obey Christ's commands. Whatever God's commanded us to do clearly in the scriptures, we need to obey. And we know the only way we can do that is by what? By His Spirit, by His power. Who accomplished this? This obedience is out of love to Him, it is not out of performance to prove our worthiness to Christ or to work for our salvation. That's a wrong use of the law. The law was never made for you to keep it all so that God will be beholding to you in any way, shape, or form. God is not beholding to you at all because you can't even get close to living out the law the way he requires. But we we seek to obey God's law because it's his clear description of how he wants us to live, and we do it out of love, knowing that we're loved by him, not based upon our what? Performance. Christ died for you while you were still his enemy. He saved you while you were his enemy. His love for you is deeper than your performance. Well, I just didn't have my quiet time today, so I can't pray. That's not your reason for access to prayer anyway. If that's the case, you don't ever need to pray. Ever. If your performance gives you access to God, then you never have access to God. Ever. We have to understand the gospel. Our access is because of Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God so our obedience is not to gain his favor and it's sure not to gain our salvation it's out of our our love for him and our commitment to follow him and do whatever he asks us to do because we are purchased by him out of his love for us Five, overflow with thanksgiving as you see Christ changing you. And lastly, when you fail, and you will almost and probably every hour, if you understand your sin, confess your sin, repent, and rejoice that Christ loves you despite your failure continues to forgive and walk with you and will never leave you or forsake you. How do you respond when you sin? Do you beat yourself up? If you beat yourself up, what you're saying is, I can do better than that. Really? We really have a hard time facing our sinfulness, don't we? We have a hard time facing the fact that we're sinful people. When you sin, where do you run? Do you run to the cross and forgiveness? Or do you run for the, for the, for the treadmill of obedience to the law? I had a bad morning. I slept in and I had some bad thoughts. I'm going to have to really work hard this afternoon to get better so I can balance my good acts with my bad acts. We're a lot more performance-driven than we realize, aren't we? We really are. So one, Christ is all we need. Two, you have to walk out your Christian life, your daily living, just how you came to Jesus, by faith and trusting him. And acknowledging that you will never live like Jesus except by the power of his spirit and the changing of who you are. And welcome it, embrace it, acknowledge it. Acknowledge that you needed Christ to save you and you need Christ every day to begin to live the Christian life you need. Number three, in verses four, Paul says this. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I'm trying to tell you how great Jesus is because people are gonna come in and give you some really great sounding arguments and if you're not careful, you're gonna be deluded. You're gonna be taken away from sincere devotion to Christ and you're gonna be committed to something else. We're going to mix Christ with something else. It's like having a wonderful glass of iced tea that has rich flavor, and you go outside and you sit on the the picnic table, and you run inside and forget about it for 15, 20 minutes. And you come back outside, and the ice cubes have all melted, and there we have it. it. Tastes kind of like tea, but it tastes a lot like water. When we start adding something to Jesus... Jesus gets diluted, the gospel gets diluted. And with it goes the power of Christ to change our lives. Remember the commandment in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me, in front of me, beside me, behind me, around me, near me, No other gods. Paul's ministry is laser focused on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us a warning here in chapter 2 of several things that we're going to be tempted to bring up alongside Jesus to make us have a better Christian life. One of them is human philosophy. Another one is legalism. Another one is mysticism, and another one is asceticism. Human philosophy is this. It's just simply man's way of living life, and the church has borrowed from the world in so many ways. We got this idea. You know, business is so successful at what they do. We should make the church a business, and the pastor should be the CEO, and and the gospel should be a product we give out to people. And we need to find out what people like so we can produce a product that they're going to they're embrace. And so we'll go door to door and talk to people, what do you want in a church? And they'll tell us what they want in a church. And we'll go back and build that church and give it to them. And surprise, surprise, the church is full of people. What a great deal. What have we done? We've taken the idea of the church of Jesus Christ and we've merged it with corporate America. Bad idea. Bad idea. Or the same thing. Guess what? That product's not selling in the business world. What do we have to do? We have to change it to where the people want to buy it. Well, they're not buying the gospel because, hey, it's kind of harsh. God judges. He's going to send people to hell. And you're sinful and can't help yourself. Those aren't good messages. So we need to do what? We need to kind of tone that stuff down over here about sin and God's judgment. And let's just talk about how God loves you and he's just going to bless you. Great plan? Super. So we merge the world's idea of marketing with the gospel, and guess what we get? A bunch of false converts. Or let's go to counseling. Well, people don't believe the Bible, so if we use the Bible for our basis for counseling, they're not going to believe us, but they sure believe Freud and some of these guys and some of this other secular psychology stuff. So let's blend secular psychology with biblical counseling and wet it all together like this, and we got the best of both worlds. How's that working for you? It's not working too well. So that's human philosophy. So if we're not feeling like we're doing a good enough job in our Christian life, let's, let's become a little more legalistic. We see this in, in verse 16, where we're saying, therefore, Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So in the Colossian church, there were people saying, hey, you're not keeping the Jewish ceremonial law over here. You need to be doing that. It's Christ plus Judaism. Paul goes on a rampage in Galatians about trying to say you had to be circumcised and also trust Jesus. He went nuts. When you read those six chapters of Galatians, he is livid about putting those two together. Would we be that livid in what we put alongside Jesus? Legalism, what is that? Lou Priolo, who's coming here in less than a month, gives us this definition it's elevating man made laws to the same level of culpability as God given commands. That's what it is. Man made laws risen to a level of God's commands. The Jews were tremendous at this. They had so many laws on the Sabbath, it wasn't even ridiculous. Remember, Jesus was in the synagogue one day teaching. A man had a withered hand. The 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 religious leaders are in the back watching, and Jesus has the man come stand up. He says, "Which is it right to do? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not?" And they're all back there going, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And Jesus said, be healed. And in their view of the Sabbath, healing was considered work. And they went nuts. And they planned how they would kill him. Isn't that interesting? We have a man-made law. Jesus broke. We're upset about it. So now we're going to break God's, was it Sixth Commandment? Do not murder? Wow. Legalism is raising up man-made laws. I call legalism coloring in the biblical gaps of God's law. God's law doesn't tell us everything to do. It just doesn't. It doesn't tell us as elders everything to do. It says there should be elders and there should be deacons. It tells us how to do church discipline in some ways... It doesn't tell us when we need to meet. It doesn't tell us everything we need to do in the church. It tells us we need to preach and teach and exposit the word and those kind of things. There's a lot of stuff it doesn't tell us how to do. There's gaps here. And we as elders, under the direction of God's word and wisdom, come up with the best plan we can to carry that out. But legalism is, I'm going to color in what it needs to be and I'm going to make sure that not only do I keep those rules, but so is everybody else. Everybody else is going to keep those rules. So in my family, the Sabbath looks like this. We don't buy anything on Sunday at all. I gas my car up on Saturday. We, play, we have no fun on Sunday at all. All the kids don't play. Then do anything else. These are my rules. Where's that in the Bible? Oh, it's not there, but I filled it all in for us. And now... I'm going to judge everybody who doesn't keep the law the way I say to. <clears throat> Pastor in Nebraska made these four points. Number one, legalism promotes unbiblical standards. Why did God not make, did, why did he did not define the Sabbath completely all the way down to the jot and tittle? He didn't need to. So when we start making laws that we keep... If you have a conviction and you want to do that on Sunday, that's fine. If you want to export to everybody else, that's a problem. Do we understand the difference? In areas where God has not clearly spoken, you have to make a decision on how your family functions or how our church functions. We have to make those decisions. What kind of music we're going to listen to and all the things we're going to do. But when it's not specific, we have freedom to do what we feel God wants us to do. But once we make our rules, and then we try to put them on everybody else, that is a problem. Well, I just feel that God wants me to homeschool. And if everybody else isn't homeschooling, they're all in sin. Whoops. Problem. Well, I, just, I believe that modesty is a skirt must be two inches from the floor. Oh, that skirt's up to four inches from the floor. That's sin. Well, I believe that child training should be like this. Oh, but so-and-so did it like that. Oh, that, they're in sin. Well, my idea of really being devoted to God is that I fast at least three times a week. I guess you're not devoted to God because you don't fast at all. You see how that goes? Nothing wrong with having personal convictions in an area God has not clearly spoken on but once we start exporting it, as thus saith the Lord, we're adding to the Word of God. So it depends. What do you eat? What you drink? What do you do on Sundays? What do you wear? How you train your children? How you educate your children? You name it. There's a whole, there's a whole zone of things everywhere of how you have to learn to live. That God doesn't, doesn't he doesn't just give us all the, I mean, elders, we would love it if he would tell us everything we need to do in certain areas, right? I mean, I would, please tell me how we would need to deal with this situation. Number two, not only does legalism promote unbiblical standards, two, legalism promotes performance. So this is how it works. I first come up with this God-ordained, in quotes, Standard that I've established, then I work hard to keep it. And the more I keep it, guess what? The more righteous I feel. Is it God's word? Nope. Just as good, though. God told me. Whoops. So it promotes performance. And this is how it works. Well, I've got to have my quiet time every morning. I can't have it in the evening. If I have it in the morning, that's sin. And now I'm gonna to have to ask God to forgive me for that. So I mean, so here we go. We just have all these rules, and we have them all laid out. I'm not saying we shouldn't have time in the word, I'm not saying we shouldn't be devoted to God. But be careful of understanding where God's law is and where your rules start. And make sure your rules are for yourself. Three, legalism promotes division. How does that happen? Well, it's real simple. I have these standards, and those people don't have those standards. So I can't associate with them. But they're not even Christians. I know, but I'm not going to associate them with them anyway. The king of kings comes to Jerusalem, and he can't keep up with the legalistic standards, can he? He's in the doghouse all the time, isn't he? His disciples are in trouble twenty four seven because they're not keeping all the commands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it can divide bodies. I've heard bodies who had a problem with when you have fellowship lunch, they'd have a gluten table and a gluten a gluten free table and a gluten table. And the people on the gluten free table would be upset if you ate their food. You think I'm making this stuff up? You know I'm not making it up, right, Bob? <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. You can't. What's the issue? We've created a man made law that we've now elevated to what? To being God's law. And we draw fellowship. And for legalism demotes Jesus. What a surprise. And his sufficient righteousness. Because in us making our laws in these areas where God hasn't spoken, we're establishing our own righteousness. Therefore, I don't need Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, I don't need Jesus to help me in my daily life because guess what? I've created my own set of rules and I'm keeping them pretty good. Because you know what I'm so good at? I make the rules I know I can keep. That's smart, isn't it? that's the way to do it don't make rules you can't keep so I'm going to eat three meals a day got that one down I'm going to sleep at least eight hours a day got that one down <coughs> this is legalism this is what it is look what Jesus says here you can either have Jesus or you can have your rules or, your, or these other things whatever they are the asceticism or the mysticism, let's look at it here. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You can have this over here, or you can have what? Christ. 2.16 and 17. Therefore, do not let one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is a shadow. Do you want the shadow or do you want Christ? You can't have both. It's one or the other. 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a, with a growth that is from God. Are we going to do this? Or are we going to do Christ? Colossians two twenty through twenty two, if with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to those things that the law perish with use according to human principles. You died with Christ. Are you not going to follow these man made rules? This is what Paul's asking. All chapter two, Paul's saying, Listen, you got Jesus. You've got all you need. Don't get drugged down over here into this and water down who Jesus is. Legalism, one pastor said, is a dangerous system. In it, the sheep are hurt, the gospel is veiled. Christ is marginalized, and we, surprise, surprise, are exalted. Yeah. Listen to what Matthew Henry has to say. Now, says the apostle, he who censures and condemns his brother for not agreeing with him in those things which the law of God has left indifferent. So what's he saying? You're judging somebody in an area that God's word hasn't even spoken to. Thereby, what does he do? He censures and condemns the law. Well, how does he do that? How does he condemn God's law when he condemns somebody who's doing what, they're not even disobeying God's law, but they're not disobeying his little rules that, are, that he has set up. As if it had done ill in leaving them indifferent. God has given us his law and he doesn't, he doesn't, he gives us what he believes is true. Matter of fact, the Bible says God's law is what? In terms of the P. Perfect. And we've decided to fill in and make our law as binding as God's law. Now what have we said about God's law? it's imperfect God should have been more specific about modesty standards or God should have been more specific about parenting standards or God should have been more specific about X, Y, or Z, you name it God should have been more specific about music or entertainment or whatever but don't worry God I'm going to take care of it for you I'm going to fill it all in praise God you came along (laughs) wow so helpful He who quarrels with his brother and condemns him for the sake of anything not determined in the word of God does thereby reflect on that word of God as if it were not a perfect rule. Let us take heed of judging the law, for the law of the Lord is perfect. If men break the law, leave that to judge them. If they do not break it, let us not judge them. Remember Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Was there a law against not eating with tax collectors and sinners? Not with God, there wasn't. With the Pharisees, oh, there sure was. You don't eat with those folks. Mm Mm-mm. Because they don't keep our standards. That's why they had a problem with Jesus. This is a heinous evil because it is to forget our place. Listen to this, friends. And we all can have a tendency to set up things in our own heart that we want to follow and then we start exporting it as God's word. This is a heinous evil because it is to forget our place that we ought to be doers of the law and it is to set up ourselves above it as if we were to be judges of it. So we've gone from being doers of the law to now sitting over the law and going, you know what, God, you missed the point over here. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to put some points right down here to help give more clarity. Oh, that looks a lot better now. He who is guilty of the sin here cautioned against is not a doer of the law, but a judge. He assumes an office and a place that does not belong to him. And he will be sure to suffer for his presumption in the end those who are most ready to set up for judges of the law generally fail most in their own obedience to it amen Matthew Henry I'm just busy being the judge Oop! look what I did over here I can't believe I just did that that was awful wasn't it Legalism. It seeks to supplant Christ and his gospel. And a lot of us are tangled up in it and don't even realize it. We need to think about it and be thoughtful about it. And be careful when people come to us with another set of rules that we need to keep that are not in the scripture. And if we do decide that some of them are good, then we apply them in our own lives. But because they're not in God's word, we don't export them to other people. And we realize, and keep in mind, that they are not God's law. They're a suggestion from a brother or sister in Christ. And we can benefit from it. But let's be careful we don't raise it up to be the law of God. Okay, so we've talked about human philosophy. We've talked a little bit about legalism. Way too much. And now we're going to look at mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism, this is what Paul's hammering at here with this whole thing of, of uh, understanding the knowledge of God and having the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the Colossian church, there was this thing that people were hearing some things from God that other people didn't have. And so they had this secret knowledge. Well, once you get secret knowledge, guess what? You become, your status rises in the church, and so does your authority. It's kind of like in the charismatic church. If you can speak in tongues and heal people, your status is way up here now. You're a leader. You got authority, right? Mysticism is a supposed encounter with the spiritual world through visions or voices or angels. It's a supposed additional revelation to certain members of the body. And this revelation usually... Surprise, surprise, happens in areas where God God has not spoken. Okay? Author Johnson, who wrote a book called Faith Misguided, exposing the dangers of mysticism, says the misunderstandings spawned by mysticism have gained respectability even within the evangelical community. Because mystics rely on the following, on subjective... Private spiritual experiences for guidance and wisdom, they diminish the authority of Scripture. Vision and spiritual encounters become more important than the truths found in God's Word. You know, I just had this vision, and the Lord was telling me to do X, Y, or Z. Well, what do I do with that? Or, you know, I just have this feeling I should do so-and-so. I have an impression. You know, it's kind of like, you know, there are impressions that we know are from the Lord, right? We've been reading about evangelism. God puts a person in our lap and we feel this prompting to go share with them, right? That's driven by the Spirit through the Word of God. We follow that. Where this gets dangerous is in situations where, you know, we're telling people how to live their life or what they need to do uh, based upon impressions that we have. Okay? Um, Martin Luther said, for feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving, my warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. For direction in our life, friends, We've been given the word, we've been given godly counsel, and we've been, we've been called to make a decision based upon that. And we're going to probably have a series on discerning God's will down the road. What does J.I. Packer say in the book Knowing God? The idea of a life in which the inward voice of the Spirit decides and directs everything sounds most attractive... For it seems to exalt the Spirit's ministry and to promise the closest intimacy with God. But in practice, this quest for super-spirituality leads only to frantic bewilderment or lunacy. Yet the true way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which he guides us. The guidance which God gives to shape our lives, the instilling, that is, and the basic convictions, attitudes, ideals, and values value judgments in terms of which we are to live is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word but of the pressure on our consciences of the portrayal of God's character and will in the word which the spirit enlightens us to understand and apply what's he saying he's saying this if you're waiting for God in certain situations to tell you in some kind of voice or whatever to do a certain thing He says the way the Spirit works is the Spirit takes the Word of God and He presses it in upon you. And from that, you make a decision and you move forward. That's how the Spirit of God works. He doesn't give individual revelations to people. Because then the question is how do we know this is true? You'll find that, you won't find that in the scriptures. D.A. Carson chimes in on this same subject. Most of the biblical passages that deal with the will of God focus on holiness, living in harmony with one's family, obeying God and the like. The kind of determining of God's will that utterly depends on voices, um, that will uh, utterly depends on voices, internal promptings, burdens and the like can indeed prove too far subjective especially when such experiences are invested with an authority that challenges the criteria of Scripture or the consensus wisdom of mature, spiritually-minded Christians. He says God's will is generally right here in the Word of how, how we're to live. When you get a revelation from God... That that where we find, and it's an area where the Bible hasn't clearly spoken, and your word from God contradicts the, as he says here, the consensus wisdom of mature spiritually minded Christians, there's a problem. Number one, we don't know what the source of your impression is, and nor will we ever know. We'll never know that. It's an impression. I feel impressed to go to Fredericksburg today. Was that because I ate a hamburger? What what was the impression there? I mean, I had an impression I needed to do X. I've had impressions I've followed. They didn't turn out too well sometimes. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we've had some of those. I sure don't want to call them as divine, do I? It's an impression. We all have them. We all have feelings we should do X, Y, or Z. That's why we want to make sure the Word of God bears in upon us and helps us keep in balance these things, right? John MacArthur has a few things to say about this. Scripture never commands us to tune in to any inner voice. We're commanded to study and meditate on Scripture. We're instructed to cultivate wisdom and discernment. We're told to to walk wisely and make the most of our time. We're ordered to be obedient to God's commands. But we are never encouraged to listen for inner promptings. On the contrary, we are warned that our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked that we cannot understand them. Surely this should make us very reluctant to heed promptings and messages that arise from within ourselves. Those willing to heed inner voices and mental impressions may be listening to the lies of a deceitful heart, the fantasies of an overactive imagination, or even the voice of a demon." Once objective criteria are cast aside, which would be what? The Word of God. There is no way to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Those who follow subjective impressions are, by definition, undiscerning. This was a problem in the Colossian church that Paul feared. Paul feared instead of trusting the wisdom that was in the scriptures about Jesus Christ and being led along by the spirit as he enlightened them of what God had shown them about Jesus they were going to look over here and look over there and try to find some secret knowledge or something else that would take them to a new level in their Christian life we all want to get supercharged don't we we all want to move faster down the road towards spirituality don't we we sure do we've been given what? The Word and the Spirit. And where the Word has not spoken, we use the wisdom He's given us and the counsel of brothers and sisters, and then we make the choice that best fits with what we believe to be a wise decision. And that's the way we operate. So mysticism, mysticism, legalism, it just it just and and uh, human philosophy just take away from Christ and the focus on him instead of looking for these things we should be looking on knowing Christ and following him and being hard after him and finally asceticism a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of in, of indulgence typically of religious reasons think of your monks in your monasteries well if i can just if i can just take away all the joy If I can take away all the pleasure, then I'll be more spiritual. God's given us everything for joy. He's given us food to enjoy. He's given us friends to enjoy. He's given us a church to enjoy. He's given us his creation to enjoy. God God made a beautiful creation, and we're to enjoy it. We're not to enjoy sin, but asceticism is not gonna take us to a new plane. Only thing that takes us to a new plane is Jesus Christ. And Paul finishes chapter 2 by saying, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in restraining the insidual indulgence of the flesh. So, as we wrap up, let me tell you a story. Talking about William Randolph Hearst. While in his 50s, Hearst constructed a large castle in San Simeon, California. Located on a 240,000-acre ranch, the Hearst Castle was filled with art and antiques and sculptures and tapestries from all around the world. With a net worth of over $400 in today's dollars, Hearst had no problem with a decorating budget. But he didn't view art just as an investment. He was a passionate collector of diverse tastes. As he amassed literally hundreds of pieces, he built two warehouses, one on the East Coast and one near Los Angeles. And there his staff cataloged and stored millions of dollars worth of art representing many cultures and time periods and styles. And he made donations of priceless works to museums and galleries around the world. But his first love was acquisitions. The thrill of seeing a work of art, locating it, and negotiating its purchase to add to his collection really gave him a thrill. So one day, while reading in the issue of Creative Arts Magazine, he saw a color reproduction of a beautiful painting by an obscure artist. Hearst was fascinated by the technique and style and use of color. He called his agent in New York City and asked him to track it down. The agent spoke with all of his contacts at various galleries around the country and came up empty-handed. Hearst instructed him to continue his search until the painting was found. The agent traveled to Chicago, Toronto, Washington, D.C., Buenos Aires and Los Angeles, following leads and tracking down clues. After several months, the agent was forced to report to Hearst that despite his best efforts, the painting could not be located. Hearst was furious and fired him on the spot. He then hired a detective agency and told them to pick up where this agent had left off with the simple instruction, find the painting. The agency searched for months and enlisted the services of art agents in London, Paris, Lisbon, Prague and Oslo. Galleries and store rooms were, were scoured to, but with no avail. They could not find this painting. William Randolph Hearst was not a man who tolerated incompetence and so he fired the agency and hired one of its detectives, put him on the personal payroll and sent him out insisting that he find the piece of art. Three more months passed. By now Hearst had spent over $100,000 and nearly two years on the search. Finally, one night he received a call from the detective. He had news and wanted to speak to Hurst privately. Two hours later, this detective was shown into the massive study at the castle. He sat and waited for several minutes until Hearst arrived. The detective outlined the steps he had taken leading up to his discovery, but warned, I've got some good news and some bad news. He said, Mr Hearst, I've found the piece and it is in excellent condition. And Hurst replied, Then what could possibly be the bad news? detective paused. Well, sir, um, it was in your own warehouse in Santa Monica. You bought it several years ago. If we're not careful, and this is what Paul was concerned about, we will search and search and search and search and spend all our energy looking for the key to spiritual success when we've been given it in Jesus Christ. He is the pearl of great price. He is the one who has purchased our salvation. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the way that we receive all that he has is to love him and know him and grow in our relationship with him. That's the way God has made it. Not on a bunch of Not on a bunch of human-made rules that we have to follow and run up and down and just run through the rigmarole. It is know my son, love him, know him better, and trust him. And he will bring you into all the fullness God has for you. If you're here and you think you know Jesus, then trust him. Pray to him and asking for the grace to live the life. If in the end you see no progress in your life, no progress whatsoever in growing in grace and holiness toward Christ, there's a good chance you don't know him. Because if you are a Christian and the spirit of God lives in you, you will begin to change. May it be ever so slowly, that will be the case. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness because you've given us Jesus. Father, we pray that instead of creating new rules and regulations and man-made rules and listening for voices and sounds and other kinds of foolishness, that we would love your word and that we would seek to know Christ better and that we would enjoy fellowship with him and that we would seek to follow him with all of our heart depending all the time on him to guide us to that path. Father, we pray for those here who don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would show them their need for Jesus not just for man-made religion but for Jesus and that it would be to him that they run for help Father you truly have made us complete in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness help us to grow in our knowledge of you help us to grow in our love of you help us to grow as we imitate you And obey your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.